It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. You are listening to a live Halloween performance by... Chatterbox Audio Theater on 91.1 WKNO Memphis and 90.1 WKNP Jackson. This is Kel Christie. Remember our claim that tonight's show is not for the faint of heart? Surely by now we've proven it true. And in case you happen to miss our warning to the easily frightened or upset, we repeat it here. Silence, they say, is golden. It can afford us an opportunity for rest, for contemplation and reflection. But not all silence is peaceful, and sometimes the things that inhabit it can mystify us, taunt us, even trap us. That is the case in our next story, which I wrote. It concerns the spiritual development of an idealistic young man who uses silence in an attempt to confront the infinite. Chatterbox Audio Theater presents tonight's fourth tale, Silent Retreat. The summer before I went to sixth grade, my mom sent me to scout camp. I'd been away to a church camp before, but it was about 15 minutes away from my home, and I usually saw my mom and dad twice a week. But scout camp? That was an entirely different matter. So everyone said that I would enjoy the quiet, and I would love nature, and I would enjoy the camaraderie of other boys, and for the most part, I did enjoy the swimming and the canoeing, and I tied a few knots and all that. But the peace and quiet? No, there wasn't any peace and quiet. For one thing, I hadn't ever been away from home, not really. And the other campers? I don't know. I just didn't click with them. I would try to make jokes at meals in the mess hall, and they'd just stare at me, jaws hanging open, mouths all full of food. At home, I was a pretty popular kid. I mean, the boys at St. Frank, they thought I was a riot. But not these guys. They just looked at me with their big, stupid eyes and wouldn't even talk to me. But at night, it got worse. While we were trying to sleep, four cots to a tent, the noise of the crickets would be deafening. There were other noises, too. But the bugs... Uh, maybe they were cicadas. You know, I don't know. I don't know if it was time in their seven-year cycle to come back around or whatever, but I did know that I couldn't sleep. I lay awake for 14 nights trying to sleep. The other boys, oh, they were snoring, mouths gaping, eyes rolled back in their heads, and I would rest fitfully, dreaming of gigantic bugs rubbing their legs together, staring at me with huge, bulging eyes. Stupid, I know. But still... Peace? Not a chance. So, I grew up, went to live in a city, and in a part of town where sirens, not crickets, kept me awake. But not for long. Eventually, I got used to the noise, and I got a better job, and I was going to find a place to live where the noise would be farther away. But then, I started rethinking my life. I was 30 years old, and I enjoyed selling the stuff I was selling, and I was pretty good at it. But uh, there was this kid, you see, and he lived with his mom across the hall in the same apartment building. 
I used to help him, you know, with his homework and all that. Just kind of making friends. Like a, like a big brother. He started getting better grades and not hanging out on the street so much. And you know what? I felt pretty good about that. I felt that I was uh, at least a little responsible. I felt a whole lot better about that kid than I did about the job I had. So I gave it a lot of thought. I really did. And I decided I wanted to be a priest. Now, I know what people think about priests. I know all the objections, but people forget that most priests are awesome guys. They've given their lives to service, and they're central in a positive way to their communities. (laughs) They're a real force for good, and that's what I wanted to be, a force for good. So, uh, cool, right? (laughs) I went to Father Rachel, and I asked him what he thought. I think that's a marvelous idea. You'd make an excellent priest. How long have you been praying about this? Why? hadn't been praying about it specifically, really. I mean, it was just something I realized I wanted to do. But I didn't know how to say that to a priest, obviously. So, uh, taking a cue from the Jesuits, I asked him a question. <clears throat> well, uh, how should I pray about it, do you think? Hmm. You know what I'd suggest? A silent retreat. Hmm. You know, I, I had a friend. An ex-girlfriend, actually. And a few months before, she had gone on a silent retreat. She had planned to stay for a weekend. She made it about 12 hours. I like to think that she was just too shallow and that her inability to make it even a full day was eventually why the relationship didn't work out. Now, I was beginning to think that God's call to the priesthood was what had kept us apart. Anyway, uh, the discipline of a retreat really appealed to me, so I said, uh, Sure, I'm in. Where? Father Rachel named a Jesuit silent retreat center nearby and booked me a spot for that weekend. It was in a wooded area, and after an initial meeting with the director and some guidance about meditations or whatever, I'd be left largely alone for three days. And then, Father Rachel said, You'll love the peace and quiet. Three days. Three days without speaking to anyone, except maybe God. No phone, no email, just silent communion and meditation. In the woods. With the crickets. But, okay, right? I mean, I'm older now, and maybe those crickets that year were a fluke. Maybe there were some kind of favorable conditions for crickets. Or maybe it was the cicadas or something. I got to the retreat center early in the evening on a Thursday, and I was going to be there until after Sunday Mass, and I was all geared up. I was going to say the rosary and read St. Augustine and G.K. Chesterton, lots of prayer, no phones, nothing but me, God, and some other pilgrims. You know, I liked being a pilgrim. It conjured up Thanksgiving images and John Wayne movies. So, after dinner... The priest in charge gave us retreaters a little pep talk. The disciplines of silence is the discipline of silence is not for everyone. Silence is difficult, but you will have your fellow pilgrims here to support you. You will all be hoping for a greater communion with God, with what is eternal. Many of you might be at a crossroads in your life, and this silent time of contemplative prayer will help you focus on what God's will is for you. Each of you will be assigned a hermitage. Each hermitage is far enough away from the others that should you choose to say the rosary aloud, 
You will not disturb anyone. The chapel will be open all night if you wish to spend some time in adoration of the host. We will gather together at midday for a meal, but some provisions have been left for you in your hermitage to provide for other meals. Is everybody ready? And then he led us in a prayer, blessed us, and gave us the keys to our rooms. Each hermitage was a small, really small, cabin. Each had a twin bed, a kneeler with a crucifix above it, a tiny kitchen with a hot plate, and a bathroom with a shower and a toilet. The provisions that had been left for us were mostly sandwich things, and there was water, and everything I needed was right there. So, now for the business of getting silent and praying. It was twilight, and the nighttime woods noises were just beginning. They seemed pretty benign, though. So I knelt and got halfway through a rosary before I realized that I wasn't fixing my mind on God or the question of my priesthood. So I started over. <clears throat> and my mind had wandered before I was even through with the first prayer. It's amazing how you can think about something else while you're thinking of something else, you know? But you can. So, I decided to start reading. <clears throat> I, I would read some of the confessions. But here's the thing. Have you ever read the confessions? It's not light reading. I, I thought it would be all, Lord, grant me chastity, but not now. <laughs> you know, and the funny stuff like that. But it isn't. I got as far as, I shall look for you, Lord, by praying to you. And I just couldn't fix my mind on it. You know, and the whole thing reads like that. It was early, still, but I thought I'd just lay on my back, rest my mind, and maybe I'd find some kind of peace. But the crickets! Man, they really did get loud in this part of the woods. I didn't see how the others could stand it. You know, and why were the crickets so... together? Was there some kind of cricket conductor that was leading them? You know, because it wasn't scattered, this cricket noise. Each chirp, or whatever you call it, was happening with all the others. It was at the same time, like in a horrible insect symphony, and it was so loud. <sighs> Eventually, I got up, I made a sandwich, then put the pillow over my head and tried to sleep. I didn't dream of really big crickets, but... I did dream that I was celebrating Mass as a priest in these really dirty vestments. And every time I went to put the host in someone's mouth, it was a cricket. The body of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> the body of Christ. Amen. It only sounds a little gross. But I would run back to the altar, grab some wafers with both hands, and by the time I got back to the altar rail, crickets! I got to where I was just shoving them in people's mouths, and they were screaming, and I, I was frantic, and I... I woke up at 5.30 without even realizing I'd been asleep, and nothing was right. The blanket was scratchy. The bed sagged in the middle. The pillow got hot too fast. I couldn't hear the crickets, but I could hear my own heart beating. So I got up, 
and I went for a walk. <sighs> I saw a few hermitages, cabins, whatever, ahead of me. So I went the other way, down a path through the woods. Some crickets jumped out of the path when they saw me coming. I should have chased them down and stomped on them. I was coming up on another cabin, but it looked pretty empty, so I didn't have to worry about disturbing anyone. And that was the strange thing. I looked around, but I didn't see anyone else. Or even any sign of anyone else. But it was early. I, I, I would see them at lunch, I supposed. There was a Bible in my room, and I tried to read Revelations, which just confused me, and then the Song of Solomon, which we used to laugh at in Catholic school. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep. <sighs> Funnier in sixth grade, I guess. I ate like five sandwiches, and then finally, finally, it was time for lunch. I made my way down to the Great Hall, and I took my place at the long table with the other men. After grace, we started eating, while the different brothers read aloud to us. Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go. Else if thou refuse, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall fill thy houses. And Even the houses these of them ye may eat, the locust after his kind, the bald locust after his kind, and the beetle after his kind, and the grasshopper after his kind, and Lord, all other flying be speaking before thine enemies. And thy carcass shall be meat unto all fowls of the air, and all thy trees and fruit of thy land shall the locust consume. I didn't even know all that stuff was in the Bible. Did you? Does anyone? I looked at the other guys around the table, and they were just busy sawing their meat with their knives, scraping the cutlery, and I... I... I don't know. I, I made some kind of gasp, I guess. And they all froze and looked at me. And they all had these huge eyes. I didn't know eyes could even get that big. You could see the whites all around. They looked crazy. Then they stopped staring and started sawing away again as the readers droned on. Even these of them he made the locusts after his kind and the all. After lunch, the retreat leader pulled me aside. He, he was a nice enough guy, this priest, but he looked like like Ichabod Crane or something, just all skinny with these really long arms and legs. Somehow I found his appearance disgusting, I guess. Son, I have to tell you, you look stressed. A silent retreat isn't for everyone. Most people wouldn't have made it even as long as you have. If you wish to go back to your home, we have another retreat in a month's time. Uh, you can come back then, and you'd probably be more prepared. And he looked at me with those eyes, uh, one hand on my shoulder, his elbow bent at a sharp angle, and I just looked at him and shook my head. As you wish, my son. I tried to read some G.K. Chesterton, but 
Oh, he just seems so smug, so just insufferable, that Father Brown. And St. Augustine didn't get any better. I mean, does each part containing a different part of you, the larger part containing the greater part? I mean, nothing, nothing was making any sense. Did it make sense to anyone? So, back to the Bible. Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me. Maybe I'd head to the sanctuary and spend some time in adoration of the host. I walked through the woods. They were approaching their deafening levels again. I headed into the church, and I ran to the altar rail. It was quiet. Finally. I didn't want to say the rosary. I didn't want to say a Hail Mary or an Our Father. I just wanted to sit in the peace. Staring at the altar, my heartbeat slowed. My pulse went down. Sanctuary. And then, quietly, it started again. One lone cricket, rubbing his legs together, scratching out a song, trying to attract a mate, I guess, or whatever awful things bugs signal to each other. And then uh, that wooden statue of the Blessed Virgin was just staring at me, just looking with those huge eyes, telling me that, no, of course not. I was never going to be a priest. I wasn't good enough to be a priest. And I would never be good enough to handle the body and the blood. But, but, but I am good. I helped that kid, and I was nice to his mom. And I'm a good person. I'm a really good person. I'm not a pervert or a thief or any of that. What did they mean? I wasn't good enough. And on the altar, in the tabernacle, was the host. And I was frightened. But I was angry. And I was... I was hungry. And I knocked over the statue of Mary. And I kicked it. And I picked it up. It didn't weigh hardly anything. And I just... I smashed in the tabernacle to get to the bread and the wine. The body and the blood. Oh. And, and it crashed open. And there were... There were flies. Flies just just swarming, uh, and grasshoppers, and cicadas, and crickets, and they were everywhere. They kept coming. They covered the ground. They devoured the altar cloth, the tapestries, and, and they just kept coming. <laughs> into the woods. They devoured everything, you see. All the cabins, and the church, the sanctuary, the great hall, the... I'm all alone here. I can't find anyone. But I couldn't talk even if I did find someone. 
I have taken a vow of silence. You are listening to a live Halloween performance by Chatterbox Audio Theatre. This is Justin Willingham. The art of hypnosis has existed for well over a century and has been employed, whether wisely or foolishly, in situations ranging from therapy sessions to court cases. The popularity of this technique has caused a proliferation of scam artists who claim to be able to help you uncover your past or see into your future. For the most part, these charlatans have only one true power— the ability to separate people from their money. However, just because one does not truly invoke the occult does not mean that one is safe from it. This will become quite clear during our next tale, our fifth, which is written by Robert Arnold, and which is entitled Hypnosis. All right. All right, fine, I'll tell you how it happened. I'll tell you from the very beginning. You won't believe me, of course, but here it is. Will I remember anything, Doctor? The first one was a guy named Baker. He wanted me to help him stop overeating. That's about half of them, you know, wanting to lose weight or quit smoking or something. Kid stuff. You put them under, say a few magic words, and you tell them it'll work if they can just stay focused. That way, it's their own fault when nothing changes. I mean, I think I want to remember, but at the same time, I'm a little scared, you know. Like I say, that's half of them. The other half want me to help them explore past lives. You will remember everything, Mr. Baker. Remembering is part of the healing process. You're relaxed, I hope. I'm relaxed. Good. In that case, let's begin. Just listen to the sound of my voice, Mr. Baker. Listen as you watch the pendulum swing back and forth, back and forth. Allow your eyelids to grow heavy. Do you feel them growing heavy? Mm-hmm. Some of them take a long time, but this one was easy. The dumber ones go down faster, I think. I put this guy under in a heartbeat. Now, Mr. Baker, we are going to explore what makes you unable to control your appetite. I want you to pretend that you are in a boat, a small rowboat, and that you are paddling downstream. The stream is your memory, and as you paddle, you move deeper and deeper into it. During your journey, you will see yourself through the years. Travel back. Travel back to when you were a child. Tell me what you see. I see... I see a little boy. A fat little boy with a crew cut and short pants. Excellent. And uh, what is this boy doing? He's playing with a puppy. His grandmother just passed away, but he he doesn't know it yet. He he hasn't been told. And And what is this boy feeling? He's he's feeling hungry. (laughs) I mean, for God's sake, most of the time they do the work for me, just like that. Then I wake them up and I tell them they overeat because they miss grandma, and that's the end of it. They go home thinking something profound has happened, and I get a hundred bucks for fifteen minutes worth of work. Oh, God! He's so hungry! This one was so easy, in fact, that I decided to keep going. That's wonderful, Mr. Baker. Now, I want you to get back in the boat and travel even farther downstream. Let the waters rush by you. What do you see as you look ahead? Do you see a light? I... Yes. Excellent. 
Enter that light, please. Let it envelop you. It's so warm. Yes, and now the light fades, and you find yourself somewhere in the distant past. Where are you, Mr. Baker? There's there's a whole bunch of people shouting. I, I think... I think I'm in Rome. I, I, I'm in the Colosseum with the gladiators. <laughs> How interesting. And uh, are you in the ring, fighting with the lions? No, no, I'm down by the pit, uh, the pit where they throw the bodies. I'm supposed to help clean it out, but... Uh... But what, Mr. Baker? But I'm just so hungry. Oh, it, it, it wouldn't be so terrible, would it? Just, just a little taste? Well, now, I can tell you. This was a new one on me. Uh, Mr. Baker, what is it you're doing? It's very delicious, you know. Sweeter than anything I've ever tasted. Oh, just a few more bites. <laughs> Mr. Baker, please. Yes, yes, just a few more bites. And then, do you know what? Do you know what I think I'll do next? Next, next I, I think, think I'll, I'll eat you, you Dr. Ten. Mr. Baker! What? Oh. Oh, uh, hello, Doctor. Are we finished? I don't remember a thing. What? You, you, what? I said, are we finished? D- did it work? I mean, I'm optimistic and all, but, but I gotta tell you, I still feel so darned hungry. The next day, I was with another patient, Janice. She wanted to know if she'd been a queen in a past life. She said she always felt like she had noble blood. The light. It's so beautiful. I want you to go toward it, Janice. Let it envelop you. Mm, Yes. And now the light fades, and you are somewhere else. A palace somewhere. Tell me what you see. I'm... I'm in a palace. Imagine that. And are you seated on a throne? No. No, I'm... Down in the kitchen. Children are running around. I'm cooking for them? They'll let me cook for them? They'll let me watch over their children? But I'm I'm dirt to them. They won't even look at me. They won't hardly even feed me. And what are you feeling, Janice? I'm, I'm feeling hungry. What did you say? God, I'm so hungry. Ravenous. Oh, all these precious little children around. I think I'll... I think I'll just... No, uh, no, Janice, don't do that. Ha! Surprised him. Caught him off guard. Shh, shush. No more screams, precious little one. Janice! Janice, stop this! Stop this now! It's it's unnatural! It's it's inhuman! And whoever said I was human, Dr. Ten! <laughs> oh my god! Come on, your god, all you like, Doctor! It won't change a thing! You're next! You're next! Oh, no, leave me alone! Oh, I do so love the liars! The frauds! Their deceit is especially tasty! <laughs> Janice! Janice, wake up! Janice! Janice, wake up! Janice will leave your eyes out, Doctor! She will pull them from your head and feed them to me! One by one! 
Well, what can I tell you? I ran. I ran out of the office and out of the building and took off down the street. I ducked into a little restaurant and hid out there for a few hours. When I came back, Janice was gone. But she'd left a note. Dear Dr. Tan, where are you? I guess there will be no breakthrough this week. I don't remember anything until I woke up. Back on Tuesday, sincerely, Janice. The next few days were awful. I was terrified of every patient who walked through the door. I I stopped doing past life regression altogether. Suddenly, my therapy was all about the here and now. I wouldn't even let anyone go too deeply into their own childhood. And for a while, that seemed to work. For a while. I feel like I'm traveling back. No, 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 no. Don't do that, please. Back in time to, to when I was young. And even earlier. Uh, Mr. Heffler, wake up, please. Our time is just about over. Hey, where, uh, where am I? Why, I'm in a little house. A little house in the suburbs somewhere. But it's not my house. Uh, Listen, Mr. Heffler, to be honest, I'm not terribly knowledgeable about hypnotherapy. I'm sneaking along the hallway. Oh, it's very dark in here. Very quiet. So quiet. Uh, In fact, if you'll look at those certificates on the wall, you'll see that I I printed most of them out myself. Oh, wait. What's that noise? Oh, there's someone snoring in the bedroom. Let's go in. So, you see, I think it would be best if we just refunded your money and we... Tie uh... the robes tightly. So tightly he can't move. (laughs) But be careful. You don't want to wake him. There. There now. Everything is set. (laughs) Let's start with the toes, shall we? (laughs) And work our way up to the more tasty parts. (laughs) Mm. <laughs> oh, 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 my! Oh, oh, that woke him up, didn't it? <laughs> oh, but it doesn't matter now. <laughs> yes, yes, struggle all you like. It will make the blood flow into those delicious muscles. <laughs> That's it! That's it! I quit! No more hypnotherapy! Are you happy? No more regression to past lives! Oh, oh but this isn't the past, Dr. Tan. I'm just daydreaming. Just imagining what it will be like. You see, Doctor, I'm in your house. (laughs) Well, that was too much. That was the last straw. There was a heavy paperweight on my desk. I picked it up and... (laughs) Wonderful. Try again, Doctor. Hit him harder this time. laughing. I had to stop it. So I I took a pillow from the couch and I... He didn't struggle. He was too too broken for that. But he did chew. In fact, by the time it was over, he had chewed almost halfway through the pillow. So, that's it. That's the whole story. I told you you wouldn't believe me. Whether I believe you or not isn't the question, Charlie. What's important is that you continue being candid with me. (laughs) That sounds like a line I might have used. Good, good. And good to know therapists actually say that. I think that's enough for today, Charlie. 
I look forward to speaking with you again tomorrow. Benjamin, I'm ready. Doc, uh, wait, are you... Uh, are you sure it's safe to leave me alone? Perfectly safe, Charlie. Benjamin here will be on watch throughout the night. He'll take good care of you, won't you, Ben? Well, of course, Doctor. In fact, I was just bringing him his dinner. Fine, then. I'll leave you to it. Goodbye for now, Charlie. Here you go, Dr. Tan. Here's a nice warm meal for you. Aren't you hungry? No. No. I don't get hungry. Oh, come on, Doc. Everybody gets hungry. Well, I'll just leave it for you, then. Uh, oh, take it away. Uh, I don't want it. Now, now, Doc. Enjoy it. Let me feed you. After all, soon you'll be returning the favor. <laughs> no. 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 You are listening to a live Halloween performance by Chatterbox Audio Theater. This is Rebecca Greer. Ambrose Bierce was an American author well-known for his imaginative short stories and satirical writings. He also produced an impressive collection of horror stories, many of which, though now more than 100 years old, still maintain the power to shock and frighten. Such is the case with our next story, which is adapted from one of Bierce's most harrowing tales. It follows the plight of a hunter whose mysterious prey soon begins to stalk him. Chatterbox Audio Theater presents tonight's sixth tale, The Damned Thing. From the Diary of Hugh Morgan. August 23rd. Thought Sammy had gone mad today. The poor mutt was wild all afternoon, running around in a half circle, keeping his head turned always toward the center. And then every now and again he would stand still, barking furiously. At last he ran away into the brush as fast as he could go. I was worried about him, but upon reaching the house, his manner returned to normal. I wonder, can a dog see with his nose? Do odors impress some cerebral center with images of the thing that emitted them? Uh, hello? Uh, Mr. Harker, come in, please. We've been waiting for you. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, thank you for joining us, Mr. Harker. It's necessary to have done with this business tonight. September 2nd. Looking at the stars last night as they rose above the crest of the ridge, I observed them successively disappear from left to right... Each was eclipsed but an instant, and only a few at a time, but along the entire length of the ridge, all that were within a degree or two of the crest were blotted out. I'm sorry to have kept you. I went away, not to evade your summons, but to post my newspaper account of what I'm supposed to be called here to relate. It was as if something had passed along between me and them, but I could not see it, and the stars were not thick enough to define its outline. I don't like this. The account that you posted to your newspaper will differ, I suppose, from that which you will give here, under oath. <laughs> that, sir, is as you please. I used manifold paper and have a copy of what I sent. It was not written as news, for it is incredible, but as fiction, and it may well go as part of my testimony under oath. But you say it is 
Incredible, Mr. Harker. That's nothing to you, sir, if I also swear that it is true. September 27th. It has been about here again. I find signs of its presence every day. I watched again all last night in the same cover, gun in hand, double charged with buckshot. In the morning, the fresh footprints were there, as before. Yet I would have sworn that I did not sleep. Indeed, I, I hardly sleep at all. Oh, it's terrible. Insupportable. If these amazing experiences are real, I shall go mad. If they are fanciful, then I am mad already. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. We will now resume the inquest. Mr. Harker, please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the evidence you shall give to this inquest concerning the death of Hugh Morgan, here lying dead, shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God? I do. Thank you. Now, uh, what is your name? William Harker. Age? 27. You knew the deceased, Hugh Morgan? Yes. You were with him when he died? Near him, yes. And how did that come about, Mr. Harker? Your presence, I mean. October 5th. I can stand it no longer. I have invited Harker to pass a few weeks with me. He has a level head. I can judge from his manner if he thinks me mad. I was visiting Hugh at his place out here to shoot and fish. A part of my purpose, however, was to study him and his odd solitary way of life. He seemed a good model for a character in fiction. I sometimes write stories and... And I sometimes read them. Oh, is that so? Well, well thank you, sir. <laughs> I mean stories in general, Mr. Harker. Not yours. <laughs> no, no. Now, uh, please relate the circumstances of this man's death. You may use any notes or memoranda that you care to. All right. Um, if you don't mind, sir, I'll read to you from what I've written. Go right ahead, Mr. Harker. Thank you. <clears throat> The sun had hardly risen when we left the house. We were looking for quail. Each of us had a shotgun, but we only had one dog. Morgan said that our best ground was beyond a certain ridge that he pointed out, and we crossed it by a trail through the chaparral. On the other side was a comparatively level ground, thickly covered with wild oats. As we emerged from the chaparral, Morgan was but a few yards in advance. Morgan! Morgan, do you hear that? It sounds like we startled a deer. Uh, I wish we'd brought a rifle with us. October 7th. I have the solution of the mystery. It came to me last night, suddenly, as if by revelation. How simple. How terribly simple. Morgan, who had stopped and was intently watching the agitated chaparral, said nothing but cocked both barrels of his gun and held it ready. I thought him a trifle excited, which surprised me, for he had a reputation for exceptional coolness, even in moments of peril. There are sounds we cannot hear. At either end of the scale are notes that stir no chord of that imperfect instrument, the human ear. They are too high or too grave. What are you doing, Morgan? You're, you're not going to fill up a deer with quail shot, are you? I have observed a flock of blackbirds occupying an entire treetop, the tops of several trees, and all in full song. Suddenly... In a moment, at absolutely the same instant, all spring into the air and fly away. Morgan did not reply, but catching sight of his face as he turned it slightly toward me, I was struck by the intensity of his look. How? They could not all see one another. Whole treetops intervened. At no point could a leader have been visible to all. It was then that I understood we had serious business at hand, and my first conjecture was that we had jumped a grizzly. I advanced to Morgan's side, uh, cocking my gun as I moved... 
There must have been a signal of warning or command, high and shrill above the din, but by me unheard. The bushes were quiet, and the sounds had ceased, but Morgan was as attentive to the place as before. Morgan! As with sounds, so with colors. The human eye is an imperfect instrument. Its range is but a few octaves of the real chromatic scale. Morgan, what is it? Come on, man. What the devil is out there? The damned thing. I was about to speak further when I observed the wild oats near the place of the disturbance moving in the most inexplicable way. I can hardly describe it. It seemed as if stirred by a streak of wind, which not only bent it, but pressed it down, crushed it so that it did not rise, and this movement was prolonging itself directly towards us. I am not mad. There are colors that we cannot see. Morgan, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? There's nothing there! And God help me, the damned thing is of such a color! Morgan, what in God's Run, you fool! Run! Parker! Parker! violently to the ground by the impact of something unseen in the smoke from Morgan's gunshots, some soft, heavy substance that seemed thrown against me with great force. Terrified, I struggled to my feet and looked in the direction of Morgan's retreat. And may heaven and mercy spare me from another sight like that. At a distance of less than thirty yards was my friend, down upon one knee, his head thrown back at a frightful angle, his whole body in violent movement from side to side, backward and forward. His right arm was lifted and seemed to lack a hand. At least I I could see none. The other arm was invisible altogether. At at times I could discern but a part of his body. It it was as if he had been partially blotted out. Uh, I cannot otherwise express it. And then shifting of his position would bring it all into view again. All of this must have occurred within a few seconds. For a moment, I stood irresolute. Then throwing down my gun, I ran towards my friend's assistance. I had a vague belief that he was suffering from a fit or some kind of convulsion. But before I could reach his side, he was down and quiet. All sounds had ceased. But with a feeling of such terror as even these awful events had not inspired, I now saw again the mysterious movement of the wild oats, prolonging itself from the trampled area about the prostrate man toward the edge of a wood. It was only when it had reached the wood that I was able to withdraw my eyes and look at my companion. He was dead. And that is your sworn statement, Mr. Harker? It is, sir. Thank you. Gentlemen, it is time to examine the body. You can see the broad maculations of bluish black, obviously caused by extravasated blood from contusions. The chest and sides are collapsed, as if beaten with a bludgeon. Note the lacerations, the skin torn into strips and shreds. Now, gentlemen, allow me to remove this handkerchief from Mr. Morgan's throat. Gentlemen, we have no more evidence, I think. Your duty has been already explained to you. If there is nothing you wish to ask, you may go outside and consider your verdict. I should like to ask one question, Mr. Coroner. 
What asylum did this year witness escape from? Oh, Mr. Harkon, from what asylum did you last escape? <laughs> well, if you have done insulting me, sir, I suppose I am at liberty to go. Of course, Mr. Harkon. Thank you. Sir. Yes? The book you have there, I, I recognize it as Morgan's Diary. You seem greatly interested in it. In fact, I saw you reading from it even while I was testifying. Well? May I see it? The public would like the to know what The book will cut it... no figure in this matter, Mr. Harker. All the entries in it were made before the writer's death. I see. Good day, then. Oh, gentlemen. Gentlemen, have you reached your verdict already? <coughs> we have, sir. Then read it to me, please. We, the jury, do find that these remains came to their death at the hands of a mountain lion. But some of us thinks all the same, that the man had fits. You are listening to a live Halloween performance by Chatterbox Audio Theater. This is Robert Arnold. At this time, I would like to invite our intrepid sound effects artists, Tim Greer and Michael Toll, to emerge from their stations and join us at the vocal microphones. For our next piece, these two gentlemen, along with our talented musician, Sherry Hughes, will lead us back to the golden age of radio and the classic show, Quiet, Please. Written and directed by Willis Cooper and starring Ernest Chappell, Quiet, Please was a masterpiece of creeping, minimalist horror. Tonight, we recreate one of its most famous episodes, first broadcast more than 60 years ago on August 9th, 1948. Chatterbox Audio Theater presents our seventh and final tale, The Thing on the Forble Board. Me, I'm a roughneck. Well, I, I was a roughneck, I mean, 20 years ago. A little too old, too slow now. Uh, besides, I, I got a dollar now. I don't have to be a roughneck, you see. I'm married. Got a nice home. You have to meet my wife. Hey, Mike. Her name's Maxine, but she likes to be called Mike. Mike! I guess she's busy out in the kitchen someplace. Besides, she don't hear very well. Shame, too. She's so pretty and everything. Well, you'll meet her. Sit down. I was saying I was a roughneck. Well, no, that doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. Uh, a roughneck is an oil field worker, specifically a, a guy on a drilling crew. You call them roughnecks, like you call a section hand on the railroad a gandy dancer or a garage hand a grease monkey. Same time you work around a drilling crew for a while, you're going to be a roughneck in every sense of the word, boy. The derrick floor or a board's no place for a guy with a bow tie because when you have to fool around with drilling holes that go farther down in the ground than it is from the top of Pike's Peak down to sea level, yeah, sure they do. Time I was a roughneck, we got this one well down to 7,313 feet. That was a record. But last May, Pure Oil brought one in out in the Natrona Valley in Wyoming at 14,000 309 feet. That, friend, is almost three miles. Quite a hole, huh? Sure, I don't think there's an oil man in the world that don't wonder one time or another what's down there besides rock and oil and gas. 
Oil that's made out of trees that died 20 million years ago. Oil that's made out of dinosaur bones. Oil that's maybe made out of the flesh and blood of men. Maybe that beat each other to death with a stone axe. Ate saber-toothed tiger for lunch. Yeah, you, you get to wondering. You look at the cores that come up from way down there, and sometimes there's little shells, trilobites mostly, that was alive when Manhattan Island, where New York is, was under a half a mile of ice. We found something once, me and Billy Grunewald, and something found us. I'll tell you about it. Clear down to around 5,400 feet. We'd set casing that began to get water. So we had to stop drilling and cement off. Well, you see, when water begins to seep in the hole, you pull your drill pipe, and then you let down a cementing shoe inside the casing, and you plug up the bottom of the hole, casing and all, with a quick-hardening, waterproof cement. And then when it's hard, you drill through the cement and go on down, and the cement outside the casing at the bottom keeps the water out. Well, we had the drill pipe all pulled and racked. The cement was setting, see, so we were shut down, waiting for it to harden. We'd been coring just before. Uh, You see, a a core drill is hollow, and as the bit digs down, it, it stuffs the drillings up inside it. So when you pull it out, you've got a sample of the kind of stuff you're going through. And a geologist can tell a lot from that. So there's nobody around the rig except me that night. The rest of the crew's gone into town. I was toasting some pork chops over the porch for myself when I heard a car pulling up. I look out. It's Billy Grunewald, the geologist. I give him a hello. Hi, Billy. Come have a pork chop. All right, Porky. Hey, where's everybody? They all went to town. I'm the whole crew. I had three blowouts between here and Oxnard. I wondered where you was. Ted said you'd be in here about three. Yeah, I would have been except for my tough luck. I'm dead. Hungry? Starved. Here, I got six, no, seven pork chops and bread. And some coffee, kind of. Swell. Hey, I got a bottle in the car. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have us a banquet. (laughs) Hey, where's that core? That's what I came up here to look at. Uh, It's back there on the bench. Look at it after supper. Hey. What? Didn't you say you were all alone here? Uh Uh-huh. I I thought I heard somebody talking. I don't see anybody. Keep an eye on that pork chop. You won't have any supper. Yeah, I'm watching it. Here, let me put the coffee on. When did you finish cementing? This morning. The last tower only made about 10 feet of holes, so Ted shut down before we got flooded out of house and home. Hmm. Funny about that water. Huh? How? Ought to be any at that level, according to my figuring. Well, there is. Is it salt? Sure. Right out of the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. That's funny. Well, maybe I'll be able to tell something from the core. Yeah, I hope so. Well, last core I looked at, I'd have sworn we were getting into shale. I ain't seen none yet from the cuttings. It's funny. Here, your pork chop's done. Take some bread. Yeah, thanks. Mm. Oh, man. Good, huh? Mm-hmm. Put on another. I had two already before you come. Yeah, much obliged. Yeah. You know, you never can tell what's down there. You get it all mapped and plotted out, all the strata, and all you know is what comes out of the hole. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to go down there sometime. If I was little enough. <laughs> Never get you down a hole. <laughs> You'd fit. You're skinny. I'll stay up here and look at the cores, bud. Where is that one? It's behind you. Uh, over there. Hmm? Oh. 
Well, I'll have a look at it. Why don't you wait till you finish your supper? I'm just going to look at it. Put on another pork chop for me. Okay. Wow, I wish those screech owls would keep you... What's the matter? Hey, wait a minute, Porky. Well? What? Listen. What's eating you? You know, I, I, I'd have sworn there's somebody up there on that forbo board. Oh, you're crazy. There's nobody up there. Standing against those stands of drill pipe. Oh, they're just rat crooked. One of them slipped. Now come on back and eat your pork chop. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess so. Only I'd... Oh, what you so jittery about, Billy? Come on, eat your sandwich. Here. Yeah, well, thanks, Porky. I don't know. I, I'm just naturally that, that way, I guess. I'm, I'm always scared of the dark. Doggone it. I, I hate to be a baby, but I, I can't help it. Scared of the dark? Honest. Stupid, ain't it? Oh, I don't know. Everybody's scared of something. Me? Spiders scare the tar out of me. Black widows? <laughs> I know how you feel, Billy. There another light over there? Yeah. Here. Oh, oh that's better. Hey, listen, uh, Porky, go out to the car and look in the left-hand door pocket. Bring back that bottle, will you? That's what I need. <laughs> okay, kid, okay. So I picked up a flashlight, I turned around, went outside. I found the car and I got the bottle. And the floor of the derrick was all lit up. And when I saw a beam of light suddenly flash up toward the forble board, I laughed. Billy Grunewald and his ideas. Sure, I looked up. There wasn't a darn thing up there. Except the drill pipe, racked against the fingerboard. Oh, this uh, forble board. Well, you've seen oil derricks or pictures of them. You know that little platform that runs around the outside of the derrick about halfway up? Well, that's the forbal board. Well, you see, drill pipe comes in links, and you handle them with several links screwed together so as to save time getting them in and out of the hole. Two links is a double, three is a treble, four is a forbal. When you pull the pipe, you heist it up inside the derrick with a traveling block, which moves up and down from the crown block at the top of the derrick. And then when a forbal of pipe is pulled out, it's held in the rotary table. You break the joint with tongs, uh, like a great big Stilson wrench, you see? You snub a cable that's fastened to the handle over the cat head on the draw works, and that breaks the joint. And then you hold the tongs on the pipe and give the rotary table a few turns to unscrew it. You heist away with the traveling block and swing it over against the fingerboard, lean it against the derrick. And the guy up on the forbal board takes off the traveling block. You do it all over again till you got all the pipe out. You see? Well, there, there wasn't anybody up on the forbal board except a screech owl, and it flew away. So Billy turned his light off, and I come on inside. And just as I come up the steps, he let out a yell. Ah! What's the matter? Hey, what's the matter, Billy? Hey, come here. Look here. Well, what's it? Look, Porky. My God. Where did you find that? Now, now listen, Porky. I give you my word. That was embedded in the coal. Oh, why, it couldn't be. I tell you, it was. Look where I dug it out. You know what? That rock there comes from a mile underground. And it's been a mile underground for a million years. Man, look at this. And I did look. And what he was holding was a gold ring. And it was all carved and filigreed just like jewelry. And there wasn't any kidding about it. It was real. No, 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 wait a minute. Hang on. I, I ain't done. 
I poked at the core of rock that looked like a, a kind of a petrified salami or something, and then it was my turn to pretty near jump out of my pants because right alongside the place where Billy dug out the ring, there was a mud-covered but very unmistakable finger. I picked it up, and it was cold, and it was heavy, and it was solid rock. At least it felt like solid rock. And I looked at Billy, and Billy looked at me. He started to rub the mud off this here stone finger, and as he rubbed it, it, it began to disappear. No, he, he could still feel it, he said, but when the mud was gone, neither one of us could see it. And he dropped it to the derrick floor. It went clunk. And we couldn't find it any place. So you know what we done? Well, we took that bottle and we took and finished it, Billy and me. We finished it in one slug apiece, and it was a full pint of bathtub gin that tasted just like so much well water to me. And then we sat down on the derrick floor, and we looked at each other. We didn't say a word. My eyes got heavier and heavier. The last thing I remember was I heard some kind of noise that seemed to be coming out from, well, the formal board, 80 feet above us. I shut my eyes a minute. I guess I went to sleep. And I had awful dreams. Black widow spiders crawling all over me with gold rings on their legs. Things I could hear, but I, I couldn't see up on the forble board. Billy Grunewald climbing the ladder outside the derrick in the moonlight. Faces looking at me. I couldn't figure out who they were. And then I was waked up by a horrible scream. No! I opened my eyes to see Billy Grunewald lying on the floor two feet away with a broken neck, with a broken neck in his left hand. Well, he had put the gold ring on the little finger of his left hand and the way his arms were spread out, his left little finger and the ring were gone. Well, friend, I got out of there. I run down to where Billy had left his car and I got in. I stepped on the starter and then I, I couldn't get it to go. Then I remembered after I pretty near run down the battery that Billy had taken the key. I wasn't going up there and go through a dead man's clothes to get it. So I sat there in the car, shivered all by myself till daylight. And then Ted and the crew came. Afterwards, a state cop. And everybody in the world was asking me questions. Well, did you and Billy have a fight, Porky? I told you we didn't, Ted. But you had been drinking. We only had that little pint, Ted. Ah, well, what was he doing up on the forble board? Did you threaten him? And did he run up there to get away from you? Listen, cop. Don't be a chump. Billy Grunewald and me was good friends. Then why'd you push him off the forble board? I didn't, I tell you. I, I wasn't up there. Well, what did he go up there for? I... Don't. No. I was asleep. How do you know he was up there? I didn't say he was. You said so. Besides, how would he break his neck if he didn't fall from way up there? Well, look, officer, I, I think it was just another accident. I mean, we haven't got anything on Porky here. Personally, I don't believe he did it. Well, it's mighty mysterious. So it is. 
But we got work to do. Now, how about it? That cement's hard down there, and I want to start drilling again, and I'm short-handed. Will you let Porky stay here till I run in my pipe again? And, well, then you could take him away and ask him questions till you're blue in the face. Well, all right. Okay, then, let's get going. Uh, you got uh, the steam up, Happy? Yeah, all set. All right, now, Porky, you get up on the formal board. What? Not me, Ted. Oh, don't be such a boob. There's nobody up there that could shove you overboard. Hey, you could put a safety line around you if you want. Huh? Besides, you're getting paid to do what you're told. I've lost too much time already. Now, come on. Let's get going. So, okay, I go up on the formal board. And you can bet I took a good gander around before I did anything else. No, I couldn't see a thing. So I signaled to the driller to let down the traveling block, and he did. It came sailing down from up above. I was just reaching for it to pick up the first forble of drill pipe, gave a big jerk, and the cable broke and dropped and nearly pulled me off the forble board. And it landed right on top of Ted. And if you have any idea what a guy looks like after two tons of metal land on him from 80 feet up, you keep your ideas to yourself. Well, that was enough. Two accidents in a row, the whole crew quit. They wasn't going to wait for a third. And it was Ted's money that was paying off. There wasn't any more. And as far as I know, the abandoned derrick is still there. And that was 20 years ago. Oh, I forgot to tell you something. That traveling block was right in front of my face when it broke loose. It was hanging by steel cable, three-quarter inch steel cable. And I saw that cable break right before my eyes. It looked just like a piece of string when you snap it between your fingers. I could almost see the fingers. And you know what? There was something up there on the forble board with me. And so a couple of days later, I came back. I don't know if there's anything in the world as desolate, as dismal, as dead-looking as an abandoned oil well rig. There it stands, like a skeleton off on a deserted side road and the bare yellow hills surrounding it. It's the deadest thing you ever saw. I sat in my car for a long time looking at it. Everything was just the way we left it. I looked in at the floor. The smashed traveling block was there alongside the rotary table. There was a little mutter of steam from the boiler. That was all. And then I heard a, a tinkle of something as it, as it hit the ground alongside me. I looked around. There wasn't a soul in sight. But at my feet was the gold ring that Billy Grunwald and I had found in the core of rock that came from a mile underground and from a million years ago in time. I, I heard a little sound. The sound of a kid crying. There wasn't any kid up there. But I heard it again and it, it came from above my head and, and I took out my revolver. I loaded it carefully. I started up the ladder to the formal board. Well, there wasn't anything up there. Nothing I could see. There was a voice crying. The voice of a little kid. 
and there was a movement behind the rack of drill pipes, and I saw the pipe move, and I yelled, Come out of there, whoever you are! Come out or I'll start shooting! Then the stand of pipes shivered, and I thought, What can it be that can handle a heavy pipe like, like jack straws? And then there was a crash, and the whole stand of pipe fell over, and I just got out of the way in time, and I was alone on the forble board with the thing, but I couldn't see it. I felt the platform tremble under my feet again as something moved toward me. I fired two or th- three shots. <laughs> Nothing happened. I started backwards. I knew it was following me because I could hear it mewing like a cat. My feet tripped over something. I, I saw it was a big can of red lead that somebody had left up there. Without thinking, I picked it up and I threw it at the sound and it splashed. <laughs> There it was. And I wish I... I wish... The face of a little girl, frightened, crying with hunger and terror, hands like a human being, and a finger missing from the left hand, and a body. Well, I'll tell you about that. I told you how I'm scared of spiders. But I knew where it came from. It had come from the bowels of the earth. Come riding up on the drill pipe as we yanked it out of the well. Come to an alien world and was lost. It stood there dripping with red paint. Blood red from head to foot like some horrible dream. And it put its hand on my arm. And its hand was stone. Living, moving stone. And it looked into my eyes and it mewed like a lost kitten. It's 20 years ago. I discovered many things about it what it used for food. That it was deaf, that it was invisible and, and couldn't see people when it was invisible. That if you sprayed it with mud or paint or grease paint, makeup, then it could see people. And believe me, I didn't want to see its body. I can see that in my nightmares. But its face, I can't help wanting to see that pathetic little girl face I'm afraid I might have fallen but it's very beautiful and when it's well made up it's but making it up rubbing grease paint on a stone face that looks at you and smiles and it makes sounds like a lost kitten yet I can disguise the body in long dresses She can't hear very well, and when she's hungry, I have to stay out of her way. I found out what she likes to eat, remember? No, no. Sit still. Sit still, do. Sit still, or I'll have to shoot you. I want you to meet my wife. Or rather, my wife wants to meet you. Mike, 
Mike. There she is. Come on in, dear. And with that, Chatterbox Audio Theater's second annual live Halloween performance draws to a close. We hope that we were able to add a few chills and a few screams to your Halloween. If you have enjoyed this evening's production, we invite you to visit us online at www.chatterboxtheater.org, where all of our shows are available for free streaming and download. Tonight's production featured the voices of Robert Arnold, Marcus Brown, Kel Christie, Tim Greer, Rebecca Greer, Michael Toll, and Justin Willingham. Our stories were written by Robert Arnold, Deborah Hyatt, Tony Isbell, Kel Christie, Ambrose Beers, and Willis Cooper. Music was performed by Sherry Hughes. Sound effects were performed by Michael Toll and Tim Greer. The show was produced by Eric Sefton. All stories were directed by Robert Arnold, except Silent Retreat, which was directed by Kel Christie. Chatterbox Audio Theater is a nonprofit, web-based community theater that advances the exchange of ideas by channeling creativity and artistic collaboration into recorded audio works that enlighten, entertain, and inspire. Download all our shows free at www.chatterboxtheater.org. There are many things that we can all do that may help stop the spread of the coronavirus. But one thing we can all do is to have a plan in case you do get sick. First, consult with your health care provider for more information about monitoring your health for symptoms suggestive of COVID-19. Second, stay in touch with others by phone or email. You may need to ask for help from friends, family, neighbors, community health workers, or more if you become sick. And finally, determine who can care for you if your caregiver gets sick. For more information, go to cdc.gov and be well, everyone.